You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopolies through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. And yes, welcome to the show. Uh, This week we're going to step on into a recording of our 125th annual dinner where Catherine Cashmore, the president of Prosper Australia, which is the parent body for Earthsharing Australia, gave a presentation called The Culture of Abundance. So, uh, yeah, let's uh, saddle up for quite an interesting talk going through early Australian history uh, up until present day and, uh, of course, the state of housing. All right, let's get into it. It's recorded on on an iPhone. Hopefully my sound editing skills are good enough. So, I became president of Prosper not too long ago, and I thought 125 years was a long time to be talking about tax reform along the ideals that we hold, and in some ways I feel that it's time for a new direction in order to get our message across, and I feel that that direction can't really start with the people that are at the top in Parliament, that it really needs to start with the voters, the people, the education needs to start with the people that vote. Because until we can convince the middle-income homeowner that they are going to be better off under the reforms that we're advocating, then we're never going to get anywhere. We don't have a problem convincing homeless people that the reforms that we're advocating are going to make them better off. But we do have a problem under the current system that we've got, telling the middle-income homeowner, who's enjoying the value of their land going upwards in price, that they're going to be better off if we tax the land and remove taxes elsewhere. So that's really how I've entered Prosper where I've thought about where we need to go. But 125 years and arguably where we are now, you couldn't say that we're further from where we need to be. And it wasn't always like that for Prosper. So I thought it was worthwhile just going over a little bit about where we started off. So Carla said a little bit about somebody. Somebody at that time was willing to give 10,000, and what did you say, Carl? Where have you gone? Was it their life savings, did you say, or their...? It was, it was a big chunk. He was a, he was a humble osteopath. Mm-hmm. 10,000 pounds in 1928. Apparently, it's a huge chunk of his 10,000 pounds. What does it take for somebody to be so convinced about what we're advocating that they give that amount of money away? That's a long way from where we are at the moment. Um, Progress, our journal at the time, had over 20,000, had a circulation of over 20,000. Again, a long way from where we are at the moment. And importantly at that time, both the Labour and the Liberal Party had land value taxation as a key part of their policy platforms. There was a reason that it was called the Progressive Era, and that was an era that began with Henry George. In fact, Jacob Rees, who was a um, uh, advocate and also a journalist in America, marks the beginning of the progressive era based on the um, publication of Henry George's book, Progress and Poverty. And he was quite a remarkable man. Just based on his reading of Henry George, he went out into New York and he took photos. He, He produced a book called How the Other Half Lives. He was a photographer. And anybody who's interested in photography, he had something to do with the invention of the flash photography. But he went into the slums of New York and he took these just amazing photos 
of the slum conditions, and he shocked readers by doing it. <coughs> and he caused quite a few reforms based on that. You can see there the number of people that were living in the areas that they were. And this is what he said. Closets became bedrooms for multiple people, small houses built for one family, often became the residence for ten or more families, all of which were paying high rents. And I thought when I was looking back and I was researching into the progressive era and the reforms that were done at the time, and you know, you'd like to think that things have moved on and things have changed since then. And immediately after you published that book, things did change for the tenants in, in New York. There was the Tenements Act and things did change. And, but I couldn't help it, because being a buyer advocate, I do go out looking for properties for clients. And I do walk through a lot of apartments in the inner city and a lot of old houses and come back to the office and talk to David Collier about, you know, another one that I've seen which has been falling down. And I couldn't help just hunt around for a few photos of what it's like today in the apartments in the city. And this is an apartment where there's nine people living in a two-bedroom apartment. And the landlord is charging them 120 to $150 each a week. And he's netting about $56,000 a year from doing exactly what Jacob Rees talked about in the Progressive Era, which is subdividing the apartments into tiny rooms and putting the curtains up. So I thought it was interesting to draw, to draw a little bit of a comparison about what we had there. But arguably at that time, Australia was at the forefront of good practice. For example, we had Robert Richard Torrance, who created the Torrance title. And he did that after 75% of the 40,000 land grants in South Australia had been lost due to the land boom. 13,000 of them were owned by absentee landlords, and 5,000 were seriously defective. And it was said at the time that the legal industry was earning over £100,000 a year doing the chain of title that you had to do then. And so Robert Richard Torrance came along and he, did, he created the land title, title, which was a title on registration of the land, and of course the practice was adopted worldwide. And this is Timothy Coughlin, who you wouldn't necessarily hear about. It was Fred Harrison who told me about Timothy when we were talking about the need for really good data. And Timothy Gotland was an engineer by trade, but they noted that he had a talent with numbers. And uh, therefore he was taken into government as a statistician. And he created the first national income accounts in the world. And he was greatly influenced by the old classical economists. And so he made a very clear distinction between land, capital and labour. And the wealth and progress, which you can still read on the uh, ABS website, it's really interesting to read and they create, have a lot of good statistics. But of course Australia was trying to attract labour and capital from overseas, they read like a prospectus, very interesting. Timothy Coughlin went on to write a book called Labour and Industry, which was is an absolutely fascinating read for anyone who's interested in Georgism because it talks about the origin of the single taxes. It talks about what happened when Henry George came to Australia in 1890 to do a speaking tour, the number of people that, that were influenced by him, and the influence that the single taxes had on the Labour Party at that time was remarkable. And when you read back, if you ever go back into the Hansard documents on, on Lyme, which of course you can go right back, and you read about the debates that they had at the time in Parliament, was 
so much better than the ones that, that we have now. So much a clearer understanding of how the economy works. And Timothy Fogdon helped with that, with his statistics and, and what, he was, what he was doing at the time. So Australia was also one of the first countries in the world to adopt land taxation, taxing the land and not taxing the, improve, the improvements on the land. So just having a land tax. This was a graph that Fred Harrison sent me again. We've been talking a lot to Fred Harrison lately. And it shows that, and that you can't really see it very clearly there, but it shows the date of the countries in yellow that have adopted land value taxation. And Australia and New Zealand were the first, and Canada was a close second. And perhaps the best thing that happened at that time, and again, really through the influence of Henry George, was the federal land tax, something that we at Prosper have talked about as a policy and how good it would be to have that policy here today. For a federal land tax, it was recognised at the time that the big landed estates that was happening in Australia, that, that you had these uh, landlords, these landowners that owned vast tracts of land, that it was the squatters, yeah, the squatocracy, as, as I was reading. Uh, vast tracts of land. It was the en enemy of progress. And so they wanted to break up the big land estates and they also wanted a source of revenue. The federal land tax did both. It had a £5,000 threshold and everyone did everything they could to get out of paying the land tax. So it was only those people that owned land over £5,000 that would be subject to the tax. And of course, just exactly as people do today when I talk to clients on the phone and they're talking to me, well, you know, we can't buy any more land in Brisbane because if we do, we'll be subject to a land tax because we have thresholds on our land tax now. Well, it was a little bit the same then. It wasn't perfect in its application. And so they tried to subdivide the land and sell it off to their children and, and even unborn babies at the time. But even so, the federal land tax was remarkable in what it actually achieved. Those holding the Crown leasehold land, there were originally 10 million titles that dropped down to 5 million by the time it had been, by the time it had been implemented, sorry, 10,000, I think it was 10,000 dropped down to 5,000 after it had been implemented. Between um, the first year of the tax, people holding land worth between 120 and 130,000 got rid of 46% of their estates. The peak of the revenue, the taxation, you can see this is a graph that um, Philip Seuss put together, who's who does a lot of uh, um, the graphs and that that we ask him to do and gets together a lot of the data that we ask him to present. It shows there that initially it got 12% of government revenue. It did whittle down because as time went by, it lasted till 1953, and as time went by, the rates did change, and, and um, you know there were arguments within government as to you know dropping the rate down during the Depression era and then hiking it back up. The most that it got was 3.3 million, from the Second World War, and it's worth noting that it was that at that point land tax was then being levied at three levels of government. So it wasn't just being collected at the federal level; it was also being collected at the state level and at the local level. So if you lived in Queensland, you would have been um, paying five percent land tax, which, as anybody here knows who's pretty well versed in land tax, was pretty much a hundred percent of the economic rent was going off in land tax. So it was quite an amazing time. When, um, in 1952, they were debating because the land tax was withdrawn in 1953, Arthur Colwell, and this is what I say when you go back to these Hansard documents and read the arguments that were going at the time, but he was desperately fighting against it. You know, why do we want to take away something that has worked 
so well for us. And he was asking the Menzies government at the time, he wanted figures from those people, wanted figures of, of the, who, how much were the people going to benefit from the land tax being removed? What was it? Who was going to really get the benefit from the removal of that policy? And he asked the government, he asked the Treasury for figures and they wouldn't give it to him. So in the end he did his own research and he went to each state and he worked out how much land the banking industry owned and the big emporiums. The banks obviously own their, their bank branches. And he noted just as one example that the um, English, Scottish and Australian bank and the um, ANZ bank at the time were going to get a benefit of $90,000 per year from the removal of this tax. He noted that, 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 that whereas the Menzies government were talking that it was going to be the small landowners that were going to get the benefit, it wasn't. It was going to be the large emporiums, David Jones, and it was going to be mostly people that lived in the city. <coughs> didn't work, unfortunately. There we go. That's Catherine Cashmore talking in our Henry George annual dinner. $90,000 a year in profits it adds to the banking industry way back in 1953. That's what happens when you remove the counterweight weight to land prices, which is land tax. So uh, that's why the banking industry always uh, talks down land taxes and prefers to tax workers. And of course, Carl mentioned in terms of, of land taxation being used to fund infrastructure, some of our most remarkable infrastructure in Australia was funded in part through land taxation. 30% of the cost of Sydney Harbour Bridge was funded through a betterment tax on those people living in the North Shore, although it should be noted that their land values went up at least three times over the next few years. Of, of that would have financed the bridge, you know, over three times from the rise in their land price over the next few years. And, um, of course, Melbourne Underground was also funded, 40% of those was funded by a betterment tax. And um, very different from what we're hearing today. Sounds like it's a really good, healthy thing to do. 
Land taxation, in the minds of most people when you talk to them about it, sounds like another burden that's going to be placed on their shoulders. And so when it came out in the press, we got very excited about it, and they launched a Senate inquiry into value capture. And we presented at that inquiry and um, went along and we spoke about how the infrastructure had been funded in the early part of the 20th century in Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Melbourne Board of Works and the levies that were, that were done on it and, and um, all went fantastically and then I was checking just not so long ago to see what had happened to that inquiry because we had presented along with a load of other people and you can just see in the middle there the inquiry has lapsed. Um, another inquiry that lapsed was the home ownership inquiry, which was going on into the, to the there's been four Senate inquiries into home ownership since 2004, and the home ownership inquiry was the last one, and that was an inquiry that has lapsed. And you didn't need to, you, did, you just didn't need to speculate long that the talk about land value taxation, the talk about having some kind of, of uh, betterment tax or something on the land values that came up that the beneficiaries of, of the infrastructure would pay to find things like this written in the age that new property levies have been ruled out to fund the Melbourne Metro. Now I'm told that there's still talk, Emily, who works quite closely with um, one of our workers who works quite closely with Melbourne Council tells me that there's still talk about this and we've been to see um, the Treasury in Victoria quite a few times and they're certainly in favour of these policies but politically these policies have become very difficult to do because the education of the public can't see it, they can't understand what we're talking about here, they can't understand the benefits of the policies that we're trying to So. Really, the situation that we've got today, they, it just couldn't be further from what we had in the progressive era. The, those reforms have been dismantled, and today we effectively live in a toll booth economy where private companies have captured the rents of essential government services, water, rail, energy, and we're required to pay lofty fees to access those services. And I didn't want to make this talk really about housing affordability because taxation is about so much more than just housing affordability. Taxation really is the key to prosperity. But like with anything when you're talking about how things affect the, econ the economy, they couldn't come out clearer than in how they affect the land market and particularly in the job that I do daily, I see this on a daily basis. So even though those reforms in the progressive era they really weren't far-reaching enough. They could have gone a lot farther than they did. The situation that we have today is a housing affordability problem, which causes widespread inequalities in the market. This is a diagram that I've used in various articles that I've written before. The diagram here shows that Melbourne, up to around 1980, which is the start of the neoliberalism, up to around 1980, land was affordable across most of Melbourne, and this is the same for the other states as well, for people on a low to middle income. This is 20 years later, and the white areas are only affordable for people on high incomes, and you can see what has happened to people that are on a low to middle income. They've been pushed out to the far regions of our state. And you might say, well, that's okay, because to be able to afford property, you need to go far out. That's the story that's, that's presented, particularly about first home buyers. You know, you can't be spoiled and picky about it. If you want to be able to afford accommodation, 
you've got to go right out there. We've got our properties in the middle. But really what's that, what that is showing you is not just how far people need to go to be able to afford land, but essentially how much value the land has accrued in the inner city suburbs. Each year, RP data, core logic, now called core logic, very um, prominent um, uh, data collection agency. They collect, they produce a pain and gain report, and it talks about those people that have gained the most from um, the rising price of their property and those people that haven't. And it is just absolutely remarkable the differences to when you live in, in the inner city or the middle ring of the city compared to when you live where you live here, which haven't gained hardly at all and they've almost gone backwards. So that causes problems in itself. But I think the, the real the real demonstration to me of what's wrong with this picture is when you overlay it onto an ABS map which charts advantage and disadvantage for people in these areas. The rich royal blue areas in the inner and middle ring are areas that have the best schools, the highest paying jobs, they're the areas with the most businesses, they're the areas where you have parks, the best medical facilities. The areas where you can see they're in beetroot red and orange and a little bit green are the areas that don't have anything to do with that. They're the areas with higher unemployment, they're the areas with greater health inequalities. Areas where people have to travel further to get to work. And in his book, Fred Harrison, in his book, if you, anyone, sure, a lot of you are familiar with Fred Harrison, but very prominent Georgist in the UK, definitely worth reading anything that he's written, but he wrote a book called Ricardo's Law. And in Ricardo's Law, Fred Harrison was very concerned with what happened as you travelled further out from London, particularly as you travelled further north from London. As you travel further north from London, further north from the southeast in England, your death rate is higher and your cancer rate is higher. And it works on a gradient that it gets higher and higher as you go into the, to the other regions. And that's really pointing out the same thing that's pointing out with this chart. In other words, where you live really determines how long you're going to live. And it's on a gradient. And of course, Fred Harrison and we know the reasons for this. We know the vast inequalities that are caused when you allow prices to go very high up. And the reason they're going high up is because, obviously, it's a part of the banking industry as well. You, you can only buy a house for as much as the bank's going to lend you. But because of the rich array of infrastructure that's been put in there that attracts demand to these places in the first, to these regions in the first place. I was going for a walk. I live in Caulfield. I like to go for a walk down the beach every day and I was listening to the Boyer lectures that are on ABC at the moment and Michael Marmot who is the president of the World Health Organization is giving those lectures and as I'm walking along I'm listening to him say all of this in his lecture talk about why do we have health inequalities and he's talking about such severe health inequalities dependent on where you live and the difference in the age that you will live, live to, dependent on where you live. Exactly the same thing as we're talking about here. Now obviously, he doesn't know the, region, the reasons for that. And I know that some people, perhaps if they're, you know, want political persuasion or whatever, they might say, well, you know, 
where you live just doesn't determine that you're necessarily going to be a smoker, you're not going to eat as well. But the economic realities of this really does add to the stress in your life. You can imagine living in one of the regions in the West and the amount of time that you have to spend getting to work, that you don't have the facilities that you need, that you haven't got access to the best playing jobs, all of that. It does actually affect your health quite badly. And we can talk about, well, you know, people should make more of an effort, but really it's not addressing the cause of the cause. That this has been going on for decades, and we really need, do need to address the cause of the cause as to why these things are happening. And because Georges have that answer, and we always have have that answer. The other thing that I wanted to point out, really, with what's going on in the housing market, is that yields on properties are now at record lows, the lows we've ever had on record. So that means that now if you buy, at the lowest in Melbourne, if you buy a property in Melbourne, you'd be getting around 2.8% yield on that property, and actual rents are falling. Which really comes down to the fact that it's become, in a sense, irrational to buy property. Your rent really is based on the earnings of that property, what you're going to earn from the property. Even though we have got record low rent lending rates, record low interest rates, the rent that you get for your property, the weekly rent, isn't covering the interest rate, let alone the principal, which is really a policy system of finances, as Simon Minsky points out. But it just goes to the fact that why bother buying unless you're buying for capital gain? And that really is the only reason that buyers are out there buying today, because that's what the system dictates of people. The system and the taxation system dictates that unless you become a speculator in the housing market, you're really not going to succeed wealth-wise in many other ways. So that's really the system that we've got down, we've got, we've got at the moment. And I was trying to think, you know, how, how's the best way to, to demonstrate these kind of things happening? And I just couldn't think of a better example than Fisherman's Bend. When in 2012, Matthew Guy decided that he was going to rezone 250 hectares of land not adjacent to Melbourne, but a little further south of Melbourne, so kind of leapfrog. And he was going to rezone it as capital city zoning. And capital city zoning is across the whole of the city, and it, it really means that you can build mixed-use zoning, commercial or residential, and you've essentially got no height limit to that zoning. And because as soon as he rezoned it, the land values escalated in that area. Because as soon as you can do something, as soon as you can maximise the potential of that land, your land value is going to go up. And who was it found that had bought into Fisherman's Bend just a few months prior to it being rezoned? It was the Liberal lobbyists and people in Liberal government. So Andrew Burns was a uh, former uh, Liberal treasurer, treasurer, had bought in four months prior to the um, area being rezoned. He bought in for seven million. His land was revalued at 20 million after it had been rezoned, and then after it spent about 50-60,000 getting planning approval for a tower block, his land was, was revalued at over 100 million. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money which is essentially unearned money, and that's what we're talking about. This just, this, um, 
this sort of whole system of um, you know rezoning and the corruption that goes on around this. You know, I mean, you you can think back to the days of Thomas Bent, who's turned Bent by name and bent by nature and again another one that I was reading up about a few weeks ago and oh, I knew I knew that he was he'd been the mayor of Bentley and the, the mayor of Brighton East and commissioner of railways and he uh, when he did the extension from the Caulfield to Cheltenham on the rail line he made sure that it went through his lands thus greatly increasing the value of his land and uh, then I was reading a little bit more on him and I was found that he was really undone in um, 1881, when the Age published letters that he had written to ministers promising to put rails, rail through their land if they voted for him, and because that was really what his downfall was. But what happened to him at the end? He got a state funeral. You know, that was one of the things that always just amazes me that the, the man who was just known, riddled with corruption, you know, that had made his fortune from speculating and, and you know, doing the system, and yet he'd gone and been given a state funeral. And I thought, well, that just really says it all. And there we have Catherine Cashmore at our 125th annual dinner talking about the, the systemic pressures that lead to situations like today's uh, homeless encampment showdown at Flinders Street Station. Just horrid to see that uh, we're at this level in society that uh, people who read the Herald Sun can fly off the handle thinking they're all dull bludgers and not looking at the deeper causes to it all. All right, uh, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks so much for listening here on 3CR's beloved airwaves. Uh, make sure you check out earthsharing.org.au and uh, prosper.org.au. And gee whiz, I'd love to uh, pick up a few new members, uh, $30 uh, to subscribe and uh, to prosper and support the radio show. And you get four editions of our 112-year-old magazine. Right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Speak to you next week. You know, doing the system, and yet he'd gone and been given a state funeral, and I thought, well, that just really says it all. Um, but when I was doing, when we've done various studies on rezoning, and it could be highlighted this in, in Prosper at many times, and one of our researchers, Dr. Cameron Murray, um, wrote an absolutely fantastic report on developments and who you know shows you what kind of land rezonings that you can get and how much money you can make from it. When, when he'd written that report and, and it came out, a strategic planner wrote me a letter and asked to meet me in the city and I went to meet him in the city but this is a little excerpt from the letter that he wrote to me and he said please keep it anonymous because he'll lose his job if he says it. But really he was saying, you know, the focus for vested interests, the landowners and developers, has been to lobby state government to get their land rezoned ready for development ahead of others. The outcome of this has been numerous examples of leapfrog development sites. The department responsible for planning the new precincts prioritises those they focus on by whether the developer will pay their wages or not. So this is what's happening in Melbourne, the strategic planner in Melbourne, with some of the outer rings and some of the reason why you see bits of leapfrog development and some bits of land getting rezoned before others. This kind of corruption goes right down, you know. So the, the areas where there's where we're looking for affordable housing have, have got these kind of fundamental problems around them. And if anything, we really need we not only need a royal commission into the banking industry, but we need do need a royal commission into the development industry as well. They're buying it, they're buying it in their super, they're sitting on it. So even though the land has been rezoned, the 
reason that the land was rezoned, which was to increase the supply of affordable housing, which it's never going to achieve, it, it, can't, it can't happen. So there's only, there's only one state in Australia which stands different out of the array of, of bad things that are going on and inequalities that are being caused. And this is Canberra, and I hope everybody here knows without me going into detail about how Canberra was set up on a leasehold system. Walter Bernie Griffin, who designed Canberra and also had a hand in its leasehold system, was one of our founding members back in the good old days. And, um, and uh, because they recognised at the time that if they announced where the new capital was going to be, there would be a rush of land speculation around the capital. And so, in, a, in Parliament, again, if you go back and read the documents, it was said that we, we will not allow fancy prices to be put on land, and we will not allow the speculators to profit. Instead, we will set Canberra up as a leasehold system, and you will pay 5% of the value of the land annually, and so if the land was worth $1,000, you'd be paying £50. $50, being in Australia for 13 years. Difference wrong every now and again, but that's how much you would be paying, you know, for the land. And, and so the 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 it would the gains it would never capitalise into the price. Just as Carl Williams was saying there, you know, the land price is effectively zero because the gains in the land and the location and the value would never capitalise into the price because the government were collecting it each year. And Canberra, you know, I mean, it's been it, it lost that system. Vested interest got in the way, and there were various problems with the system, and of course it lost it. And then, out of all the Senate inquiries that have been done in Parliament, the ones that we've, we've um, submitted to, and the recommendations come back from these Senate inquiries, these are Senate inquiries into housing affordability and into home ownership. And within the recommendations, there's a whole heap of stuff, you know, um, but always land tax is in there, always about the need to, to put in land tax, to take away stamp duty, which is considered a very bad tax, which of course it is a very bad tax, and instead place it with land, replace it with land taxation, and that would help stem the increase in the land price and keep a dampener on the on the, um, the boomer cycle. And um, Canberra's the only one that's doing this. Canberra announced that over the next 20 years it was going to do away with stamp duty. It was going to increase, not land tax, but it was going to do it on rates. And it's quite an intelligent thing to do because the rate system, homeowners do think when they pay rates, they do make an association between paying of the rates that it's paying for the services where they live, whereas land tax doesn't quite have that association. It's seen as some kind of penalisation to, to investment. But they decided that they were going to increase rates, get rid of stamp duty, get rid of um, insurance taxes. They're going to do it over 20 years. They're four years into the process. And um, we've got a report coming out on Monday, which I'll talk about in a minute. But um, an amazing thing that happened, and, and Last year, I was invited to speak at the um, Housing Industry Association, their yearly summit. And last year, their summit was on tax reform. And Andrew Barr, who's Chief Minister of the ACT, was talking at that summit. And because um, I did a talk on stamp duty to land tax, and Gavin Wood, another researcher, was there, and he did something similar. And then Andrew Barr was getting up, and he was talking about how these reforms were doing in Canberra. And he gave a good speech, and I went up and I spoke to him afterwards, and I said, um, you know, how did you manage it? How did you manage to get 
those reforms over the line. Because no other state has managed it. South Australia has said, should we do it? They asked the public, the public said no. Other states have, have mentioned it and it's always come back as no. And he said to me, well, he said, you know, there are a couple of things. Obviously the fact that they are the municipal, you know, they don't have local councils in Canberra, they are the local council, the state government are effectively the local council. So that helps. You don't have to have the, you know, different municipalities that are arguing against it. But really he said to me that Canberra's full of economists and people that are generally high educated. And so they knew the precepts that we're talking about here. They understood the sense of getting rid of the bad taxes and essentially raising the good taxes. It doesn't mean that it was without complaints. Obviously, there's going to be some that lose out in this scheme. They're going to be pay paying higher rates on their land. But it did kind of underline the thing of what you have to do to get this across the line is really have a public that understands what you're talking about and you know what, what the reforms are supposed to achieve. So they're four years in at the moment to the um, change over. And we asked um, Cameron Murray, I'll just flip on to the next slide because it shows you how they're changing the, um, the tax mix. So you can see they're actually whittling out land tax, but you can see the rates, how, how much the rates have increased between 2011, 2012 to 2015, 2016, and how you know, the, the conveyances and that have decreased considerably in 20 years' time. You know, they'll have to be paying about $12 or something on, on um, stamp duty. Um, but we, we thought, well, they're four years in and they're coming up to an election in Canberra. And really, if Canberra fails, where does it leave the rest of us? Because these are the reforms that we're trying to get out there. We're trying to say, you're going to be better off if you do this. Your land is going to be utilised. And, and really, Canberra, when I, when I spoke on the previous side about the land rezonings that are going on in Melbourne, and that I've got buyers that move in and buy this land and they don't develop it, you can't do that in Canberra. They've been collecting a 75% betterment tax from rezoning, so that the homeowner doesn't get the, the windfall. Since 1971, since 1971, like what have the other states been doing? And um, and in Canberra, when you when you sell land and it's zoned for a purpose, you have to use it for that purpose. You can't just buy vacant land in Canberra and hold on to it. You've got to use it as, as the lease requires you to use it. So amazing. So anyway, as I said, they're coming up to an election, and we. Um, we asked Dr. Cameron Murray, and we said, can you, can you do a report for us on Canberra, and can you let us know, you know, what, what the changes have been, and we'll, we'll make a bit of an event of this, and hopefully, you know, we hope that they've come out favourable for us, and we're releasing that report on Monday, and we're going down to Canberra to, to do it on Monday, and without going into too much detail about what it did, the, the benefits were amazing, you know, I mean, there has been lower mortgage debt, lower, lower land values because of it, but perhaps the most remarkable thing for us when we're thinking about the future of Georgism is the fact that the 20-year transition has already been fully capitalised into the land price. Anybody who works in markets will understand, of course it has. When I said to Phil Anderson, anyone who knows Phil Anderson, who's a trader by heart, you know, and I said this to him, the 20-year change has already been fully capitalised. He said, well, of course it's already been fully capitalised into the price. Because when you change a system, in other words, the land price is lower by the full 20-year change. It's not incrementally going lower and lower as the time goes by over the 20 years. And we talk a lot, and we have this argument a lot at Prosper about when we're doing these changes, are we going to be doing them slowly, 
or are we going to be doing them quickly? And I spoke to Fred Harrison. I had the same conversation with Fred Harrison. I said, Fred, when we're doing these changes, you know, do we do it slowly or do we do it really quickly? And there's different thoughts coming out. You know, there's some in our office who, well, who reckon it needs to be done very, very slowly, and there's some of us that think, well, we need to do it very quickly. But if anything, putting aside the arguments, the fact that the whole 20-year change has been capitalised into lower land prices show that the public advanced the change anyway. They changed their behaviour immediately on it. That change has already happened. So when we're trying to do it, the system is always working to hurry it up. And personally, I don't think that we have time to do anything slowly. There's too much time for, for parliaments to change, politicians to change. There's too much time for people to get in the way. Anything that we need to do, I think we need to do very quickly. Um, and so, you know, again, it goes a little bit to Carl, Carl Williams, the warm-up guy, when he stood up here and he said, you know, he was talking about um, what happens when you go, you know, as an economic graduate today and as an economic graduate you're not going to learn anything about how the real economy works. Philip Seuss will, will um, tell you about that. You know, you're, you're, you're going to learn more studying this area of economics about how the real economy works than anything else. But, I mean, it, it comes down again to that, to that idea of education. And the best-selling economics book that's come out, you know, really over the last... 10 years, I'd almost say, was um, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, which was really kind of saying the same, of, same as Henry George in a way. Thomas Piketty came out and he said that the return to the rate of capital has been higher than economic progress, than the rate of economic progress. In other words, the capitalists have been taking all the gains of progress, which is essentially why we have progress and poverty. The, the gains are going to someone and, the, and everybody else is living in poverty as they take all the gains of the progress in the system. And it came out and Thomas Piketty said that the only way that we could get around this was to um, instigate a global wealth tax on wealth. Something that just would be impossible to do. So in other words, he, he came up with this theory and he gave us something that was just going to be unworkable from where he'd come. It took an, an MIT graduate called Matt Rockley, I hope I pronounced his name right, I tried a few times to, to think how to pronounce his name, but you'll find if you Google him, to do what Piketty hadn't and to do what Henry George did, and that was to separate the land component from the capital. And he said that the gains to capital, they'd been fawning before 1970. Capital, capital is anything man-made, and capital obviously depreciates with wear and tear. And since 1970, you know, a technical era and everything, they have been remarkably stable. This is the, the capital, this is the total, this is the, the non-housing part of the capital. But when he disaggregated the housing from this, the gains for housing have been increasing over the time. In other words, the people that have really benefited from what had happened in his progress and poverty um, uh, analysis were the rentiers. What he didn't show us were the people that the rent seekers, primarily the landowners, were the ones that had taken the gains. Well, this is what Henry George said 130, 135 years ago. Exactly what Henry George said. Henry George, first of all, he recognised that people were going to be naturally rent seekers. Rent seekers. 
that people were going to, and particularly when you gave them a chance to, they were going to attempt to make money in the easiest way possible. And there's no easier way of making money than lying in bed and listening to the creaking of your land price going up in the middle of the night. And so he, Henry George recognised that. He recognised that there were three distinctive factors of production. Land, natural resources, of which the return was rent. When we talk about economic rent, what we're talking about. Labour, which the return was wages. And capital, which the return on capital was interest. And production really equaled the rent, wages and profit as their respectively terms to land, labour and capital. But when you altered that equation, this is what you get. But wages and profit don't take the gains in society. Wages and profit don't take necessarily the gains which, which they create, that labour creates. They take what is left after rent has been taken out. Production minus the rent equals the wages and the profit. In other words, wages and profit can only make what it can make on marginal land without a price. Labour is elastic. You know, if you've got, um, if the shop owner on the corner in the corner shop is making more revenue because they're opposite Flinders Street Station, that's not going to be passed on to the wage earner that the, the labourer who works in the shop, because shopkeepers have a, have a price, is not going to pay them more for doing that, the gain is going to go into the land. And that's essentially what Henry George did. And of course, he had the solution for how we can, how we can change this. The wages and the interest, we tax very highly. The labour and the capital, I should say it should be profit, it shouldn't really be interest, because it confuses the matter really, it should be profit, which I put in the, in the um, bottom bit there. But, but, Labour and capital we tax highly, rent we don't. And that was what Henry George was saying, that's why we have progress and poverty, that's why we don't get the gain of the progress that happens. And so, um, you know, when I, was, um, when I was talking to Fred Harrison and I was telling him that I was doing this talk and, um, you know, just we were discussing the future of Georgism and what, what we really needed to highlight. And he was talking to me that about the deadweight costs, the loss of production to the economy because of the taxes that we have. The deadweight costs really, for every dollar of tax that we, that we raise, what do we lose in the economy? And the tax system really, the conventional, conventional analysis of the tax system is that we need to spread taxes over a broad base in order to make them stable. So we need to have a little bit of tax on land, a little bit of tax on labour, and a little bit on capital. And anyone who came to last year's Henry George dinner, we had um, Miranda Stewart, who um, really gave this argument, you know, well, we need, to, we need to have it as a stable tax system. You know, we'll try and take it from everywhere. And it really comes, comes down to a misunderstanding about where all taxes fall. Labour labor and capital are, are mobile. You know, you tax labour, you tax capital, and it flees. You know, and there's always a way of getting around those taxes and, and getting away from them. And it, it comes down to the principle of what we call at core, which is all taxes come out of rent. And just a couple of quotes that are going to say it a little bit better than I did. Mason Gaffney, when we lower other taxes, the revenue base is not lost, lost but shifts to land rents and values, which can then yield 
more tape. And of course, Henry George, which I prefer, though you probably prefer most of Gaffer, we felt it said it better, but Henry George, it may seem like a truism to assert that the only fund upon which taxation can draw is that made up by the produce of the community, and that, and that to multiply the places which it is trapped is not to increase its capacity to yield. At core, how do I explain it to clients? What I explain to clients is, is, is if the government was to give an income tax tomorrow, what would happen to house prices? They would go up. Because my clients and the people that I deal with, they borrow as much as they can from the bank to buy a house based on what they earn, what the taxes that they have to pay, their labour taxes, the expenses that they have, and then what is left, they put into their investments or into their owner-occupied residence in land. There was a really good example of this in the 1920s Warren Harding, who was president at the time, he employed Andrew Mellon to be his treasury secretary. And Mellon was known as an operator, the, uh, the, um, the uh, J.P. Morgan of Steel City. And he favoured lower taxes. And he persuaded Warren Harding to reduce taxes on the wealthy from 75% to 25%, with also $4,000 threshold. That meant in America, for virtually nobody was paying in that time, any income taxes, which sounds great, sounds really good. And so they, they did this in the process, they did it first in, in 1924, then 1926, and then 1928. And everybody remembers the 1920s for the Wall Street crash. But what nobody remembers is what that did to land prices. Between 1920 and 1926, land prices doubled in America, which gave the banks more equity to lend out into the economy, to lend against the people that were investing on the stock market. Nobody remembers the um, lead up to the 1930s as, as a land price boom and a crash. They think about it as, as a stock market crash, but that was essentially what happened. If you think about it on a more micro level, I've done a lot of study on, on stamp duties and there's, oh, there's heaps of studies that you can Google around and you can read and papers that have been written um, on various times where stamp duty has been implemented on housing and when it has been taken off housing. There was one in the UK, for example, where in their wisdom in 2008 when they needed to buoy the economy, they decided that they were going to get rid of stamp duty. And because here, when you listen to anybody in the uh, in Parliament or anyone saying we're going to get rid of stamp duty, the rhetoric is it's going to make housing more affordable. Well, no, it didn't make housing more affordable. When they got rid of it in the UK, the house prices, or I should say the land prices, talking too much about house prices here, increased 100%, no more, no less, but 100% of the difference, of, of the stamp duty rate that they got rid of. There was another one in Toronto where they didn't even advertise, advertise the change in Toronto, where they decided they were going to implement a stamp duty. And the prices there reduced by 100% of the stamp duty that had been implemented. In other words, the land always took the gains. The, the same happens with buildings. But Mason Gaffney has done a whole load of studies of what happens when you tax the land and you don't tax buildings. When you remove the taxes off the buildings, the land price goes up by the amount that you've removed off the buildings. So that's really the principle of ACCOR. What it's really saying is when we remove taxes from other areas of the economy, we don't actually lose that tax revenue. It soaks into the land. 
And therefore, if we tax the land, we're getting the full revenue. The land price goes up, it takes those gains, we can tax that. And the benefit of taxing that is that the land doesn't flee offshore or go overseas. You don't ever lose your tax base. But why, why do we want to do it? Why do we want to remove those taxes? And, and that really comes down to the conversation that I started to have with Fred Harrison. And I said to him, he said to me, Catherine, he said, can you get what the deadweight taxes are in Australia? Can you get me the, um, you know, the full equation of what they are at a state and federal level? Get me the, the full tax rule and we'll work out the deadweight taxes. And I said, oh, I said, I think we've already done that over here. I said, I'll ask Philip, because Philip seems knows everything, everything there is to know about data and, and getting those types of things. So I, I sent an email off to Philip and I said, Fred, Philip, didn't tell him I was doing this talk, but I said, you know, we want to get these, want to get this, this, um, you know, the, the true cost of the deadweight taxes. Australia can do it, and then Philip sent back these figures to me, and he said to me, um, I, I, um, he said to me, he's done them based on the KPMG study. The KPMG study was done for the Henry Tax Review, and the Henry Tax Review came out, which is brilliant review, very readable, anyone who wants to read and understand a bit more about land taxation the, the review was fantastic about. But the Henry Tax Review at the time, it, it asked for the deadweight cost to be measured and KPMG had done a study of the deadweight costs and it came up with those measurements and Phil, Phil, when he gave me the data had done the data on the study. So it, it came back and it said that, that per annum we were losing just a smidge over 78 billion per year. So you can imagine that year on year, I mean that's quite a substantial amount, but it's still I think roughly in about 20, 28% or something of, of total federal taxation. So I sent that off to Fred Harrison and there was a bit of silence at the other end and then he sent me an email back and he said, Catherine, these are grossly underestimated. He said, I sent these off to Mason Gaffney and Mason Gaffney has come back and he said they just can't be accurate. And um, I said, okay. He said to me, in, in the UK, when I, when I was writing Wheels of Fortune, Wheels of Fortune is a book that Fred Harrison has written on value capture. Anyone who's a Phil Anderson subscriber here will, will know about the story about in um, London when they increased the tube line, or the Jubilee tube line, and how it increased the land values around by something like 300%. And somebody who benefited from those land values, you know, wrote the introduction to Wheels of Fortune because he recognised the inequality that was causing. So, so Fred Harrison had written that book, and he tried to get the the cost of deadweight taxation from the UK Parliament, and he'd written to them, and he said, under the Freedom of Information Act, I want to have you to tell me what the costs are of the deadweight taxes here. And they came back and they said, oh, it's about 30 pence for every pound that's raised. And he said... Wait, what is, what is deadweight cost? So the deadweight cost for every dollar of tax that you raise, when you're putting it on, on labour capital, it's the cost, it's the amount that is lost. So in other words, for true compliance costs, you know, you, you, you raise a dollar and then, you know, um, because it, it reduces production, you raise a dollar, say, on, on um, it has to be passed on in prices. So you raise taxation for a business, the business can't bear that taxation, they have to impart, pass it on to prices, that means people buy fewer goods, and perhaps fewer goods are made to be sold, and so the conventional analysis is some way that causes a problem to the economy, and the deadweight cap taxation is trying to put a dollar amount on the problem that that causes in the economy. So this is what Fred Harrison was trying to find out, because the one thing, the only thing that the, um, that the uh, tax 
any, any uh, tax review that's been done agrees on is the fact that there's only one tax, there's only one tax, but broadly speaking, there's only one tax that has a zero deadweight cost, and that's a tax on land. Because it, it can't be passed on. The landowner has to bear the tax. If you think about it as if you were buying um, an apartment in a block of units, say you had two tower blocks side by side, and I was showing you through them, and I said, if you buy an apartment in that tower block, you've got to pay $4,000 a year for the owner's corporation fee. But if you buy an apartment in there, there'll be no annual owner's corporation fee. Which one would you pay most for? You pay most for the one that didn't have any owner's corporation fee. And because you knew you had to handle the expense of paying $4,000 per annum for the owner's corporation fee in, in the other tower block, you wouldn't be prepared to spend as much. You'd have to factor that into your budget. And the bank would have to factor that into your budget when they decided what they were going to lend you. And so land taxation, it's recognised that it's, it has a burden on the landowner only. It reduces the land price. It takes away the economic rent because the land price isn't earned. When the land price goes up, you don't do anything for that land price to go up. And that's really the philosophy of how it works. And so they, they do agree that, that land value tax isn't passed on. But anyway, Fred Harrison, you know, he, he knew. He knew that those, those uh, 30 pence for each pound raised wasn't going to be right. And so he um, wrote off to them and he said, I want your working papers. I want you to show me how you came across this. And uh, they came back to them and they said, we don't have any. We just never tried to work it out because there's too many taxes. It's going to be too difficult to work it out. And so um, we're, we're a bit more fortunate. We've had the KPMG study done, and then last year Treasury tried to do a study as well. And you know both of them have come out with these very But why would the costs be higher? Well, it's recognised, you know, in conventional economics, which is really what I was saying to you, talking to you about that, is that. You know, if you think about that you have a bookshop, for example, and the bookshop has 20 employees, and it has to pay payroll tax, and it has to pay um, sales taxes, and it also has to buy the inputs for its business, it's got to employ labour, it's got to buy shelves, it's got quite high costs. Conventional analysis recognises that the tax is, is it's somehow going to be shifted. The bookseller can't bear the tax, so he's going to put the price of books up. Fewer books are going to be sold, fewer books are going to be bought. That's going to have a uh, loss of production. And that's what they're really measuring when it comes to, to the deadweight cost of taxation. And I guess the, the one thing to say about the KPMG study is that now these computer equilibrium models are, are used. In other words, they have a computer and they have, you know, there's, there's a whole cloud reason about how these, how these um, computer models work. They won't actually tell you, but they, they basically try and model this kind of behavioural impact, and that's the impact that they have. So in my discussions with Fred and Mason, you know, I sort of went back to them and I had a discussion. And Mason Gaffney said, well, he's, he's taken it one step further, because if you go back to my example of the bookseller again, who is trying to pass these taxes on to his customers, well, it goes a bit further than that because we're really in a global economy now where we've got the World Wide Web, and the bookseller might not be in a situation where he, can't, he can pass those taxes on. And so, in the end, he has to shut down the bookshop, and a gas station moves in and buys the land from the bookshop, and the gas station has self-service tills, and they only need to employ two people, 
I will in a minute. They only need to, I hope I can see you. They only need to employ two people and they can pass the price on because there's no one around them, there's no competition around them. You pass it, you can't, you know, you've got to buy the gas you put in your car. And so that land, that land use change is what Mason Gaffney calls a quantum leap. And this slide kind of demonstrates it, and I'm sorry for using something like this, but once you get your head around it, it kind of makes, makes, the, makes it clear what I'm trying to say. You've got land use A and land use B, and land use A, you can imagine, is the bookshop. And the first column is its gross revenue, and you can see it quite a healthy gross revenue, but its costs are also quite high, which is the second column. <coughs> and what's left after you take the costs away from the gross revenue is what you've got in the third column, what you've got left in the third column. Now, if we just imagine that you've got a tax, a 10% tax on gross revenue for argument, after the tax, the bookshop's left with nothing. Tax has taken away 100% of its gross revenue. The gas station, just as an example, is, off, is, is letting a little bit less. Gas station probably the best example to use, but you get the idea. Its costs are lower, that's lower, but the tax at 10% on its gross revenue <coughs> is still leaving it with something. In other words, the tax system, as we've got it at the moment, is encouraging lower land use than the bookshop. What happens when you get those quantum leaps in land is that the employees that were going to be from the bookshop that were going to be spending in the local economy and you know the um, sales revenue that was going to go on and the taxation revenue that was going to go on from, from the government was going to collect from the payroll taxes and everything have been lost to the economy and what has, what has been replaced it is land use which is far less intense. Now those are the types of things that can't be measured by the conventional measurement of, of the deadweight taxes. And so we had a bit more of a conversation. The conversation continued with Fred Harrison and Mason Gaffney and you know, we, we talked over these issues and the things that can't be measured. And Fred Harrison said to me, he said, um, he said send me the um, revenue. And um, me and Mason will do the equation of what we think is the loss. So I did. And meanwhile, I had a conversation with Brian Kavanagh, who's over there, who um, is a valuer, and he wrote the riches, Unlocking the Riches of Oz. And I had a conversation with him, and I said, what do you think about these dead weight losses? What do you think? And he said, well, what I wrote, Unlocking the Riches of Oz, he said, I did it a different way. So this is, this is kind of like, this, a static example of deadweight losses is really when you're just looking at what the losses are just for one year. But this was really a sort of a bit of a dynamic assessment of what the deadweight losses were. Because <coughs> Brian was looking at what happened to land values since 1970 to 1960. Is that right, Brian? 1972 to 1972. 2006. 2006, sorry, sorry. Brain snap. To 2006. And, you know, what the effects on the economy have been. And there have been three recessionary periods And in those periods, it's obviously been a debt, you can see in the, color in the, in the, in the um, GDP. And he said, well, have we had a different form of taxation? 
and instead of the deadweight cost, you know, that we employed in conventional taxation, had we collected the rents, the land rents, and, and therefore smoothed out those recessionary periods? Because as we all know, we all should know, is that the recessions are really caused by high land prices. The IMF came out with this wonderful statement not so long ago that when they've done this assessment of the, the worst recessions, you know, over the last 50 years, they'd found every one had been preceded by a boom in land price. You know, it was almost, again, one of those situations where, where we all sit back and say, well, you know, of course, you know, hello. So um, had, had they been smoothed out and we just continued collecting GDP, which at the, the best year was 5.53%, 5.53%, then we would be just over a trillion dollars better off in GDP than we are now. He said that's the So I, I asked Brian, I said, Brian said to me, <laughs> and he said, well, it's a fair analysis, dice didn't cut it however you like. But in the meanwhile, Fred and Mason did come back to me and they came back with the cost. And Fred said to me that 320 billion a year was what they had come up with, which were, were, what were the losses in deadweight taxation. There's been a range of studies that, that have been done. Um, Martin Feldstein, a Harvard economist, was one, one of the people that, that did a study on it, and he looked at the um, difference in a tax, when they've had difference in income tax regimes in America, and you can find actual measurables from the change in the tax regime on the effect on the economy. And so he did a measure for that, and he said for each dollar raised, for each dollar raised, we are at least losing one dollar of taxation. Another study that was done said that for every one percent increase in GDP, we're losing three percent through deadweight taxation. And I guess what I'm trying to get across to you, and what I was talking about with Fred Harrison, is that there's just, whenever you hear about tax in the mainstream, whenever you turn on the radio and listen to tax, it's all about how we need to raise more revenue without any discussion of what, what we're losing by raising that revenue. And what we're using is enormous. You might as well take your, take your tax payment and flush it down the loo, because you're not getting anything from it. And the government aren't promising you anything from it. They're not saying, well, we recognize that you're going to, let's say they wanted to be really concerned with you, you're going to lose 30 cents in the dollar. And so we'll make sure that anything we use your taxation for is going to give the, the economy a return, a benefit from that. They're not recognizing that at all. And, and so this is one of the things that I think we need to get this out to the public. And what Fred said to me in conclusion on this point is he said that in England, what he's going to do, and bear in mind they're behind us in England, England in terms of there are no studies on it, you know, is he's now going to launch a petition for the government to come clean in other words, we need to be able to measure it. We need to have it advertised each year, what we are losing in productivity, how we are penalising work, how we are destroying the economy, how we're causing these boomer cycles. We need to have it publicised every year. What are the costs of deadweight taxation? So people can see, we can stir the pot, and they can start to get angry about it, and they can start to understand that... In a competitive economy, the one thing that all these tax um, studies agree on is that land ta taxes can't be passed on. You don't lose the tax base by removing taxes off other outcomes. 
And so to say that we can't compete with economies such as China is really a flawless analysis of the system, the misunderstanding of analysis of the system. And so I was thinking, well, you know, well, it's, it's funny when I... <coughs> This is, this is what they use in Treasury. You know, um, stamp duties have come out and they're modelled as the worst network cost, probably because it's taken on a very narrow base. And the municipal rates, which is a, a land tax, is actually giving a positive excess burden. And the reason is, in other words, it's paying us. The tax is paying us. It's giving us more money. And the reason that that is, is because we still allow foreigners to buy our land. And the foreigners buying land that have to pay land tax or municipal rates are giving us tax dollars spent in the domestic economy. So we are, in a sense, advantaging from that system. But just to go back and, and a little bit of, of what Carl said, um, you know, when you read back in, um, you know, Timothy Copeland, who I mentioned at the beginning of the government statistician, when you read back about Henry George and anything that's written about Henry George, even that far, you know, they, they talk about, you know, when he came over, he was seen as a prophet. And he was followed with an almost religious intensity. And we often have these jokes in the office about, um, you know, progress and poverty being the Bible. You know, how do you get onto the executive at Prosper? You have to be able to recite the verses in progress and poverty from memory. And then you're offered a seat in, in you know, the initiation ceremonies that we have. And now, look, it, it is a joke. And, and when you understand it, you do get very passionate about it. But I think we need to be wary about seeing it as a belief system. We're not believers because areas in the world and countries in the world have actually tried to come close to the reforms that Henry George wanted. And I can name a few examples. I started off with the most successful startup that had its anniversary on the 7th of August this year, the most successful startup in the world, and it's not IBM and it's not Microsoft, the most successful startup has been going since <coughs> 1965, and it is, no, it's Singapore, Singapore, which when it divorced, since it divorced from Malaysia, in 1965, its GDP has increased 1,356%. <laughs> compared, are you going to heckle that point? Compared to the world in general, which has only increased by 146%, America, only 96%. And Singapore, when it initially set up, it had very high unemployment. It had um, high, the slum conditions for the people that lived there, high population growth, which couldn't, didn't know how to recover from. Singapore was initially set up as a single tax colony. The World Bank now, if you read anything from the World Bank, they can't understand Singapore's growth. It's considered some kind of miracle. They can't understand it. But what Singapore did was it had policies that lent in the direction of Henry George's advocacy reform. So you can't. Well, you, 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 can have, you can own land in Singapore, but only on leasehold conditions. You can have clear title to land. But just like in Canberra, you have to pay each year the economic rent. That's the biggest tax take in Singapore. That means that it can keep its taxes lower 
elsewhere. If you were in Singapore, most people would only be paying around 7% income tax. In fact, they don't particularly want to know what you earn in Singapore outside of that. But the Singapore, at the end of every year in Singapore, Singapore comes out with a surplus based on collecting these rents. And it's not collected by the government. They've, they've done it very wisely. It's uh, TAMSEC is the company that collects these. It's not a government body or a statutory body, but it's held. That means that the, the revenue can't be lost or the government can't decide that it's through corruption that they're going to dip their hands in the pot. It's held there for the people. And so at the end of every year, Singapore has a surplus. It has virtually zero unemployment. That's despite one-fifth of the workforce in Singapore being a foreign workforce. And um, uh, people get money back at the end of the year. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Rather than taxing you, the government giving you money back at the end of the year. That's what happens in Singapore. At the end of the year, they decide how much, because they've got such a big surplus, they decide how much money are we going to give back to the public from this. Singapore doesn't lose its tax base because it recognises by having lower taxes on, on labour and, and capital that it can collect that tax case based on the ACCOR principle, that the land price will take the gain so you don't lose the tax base, that it can collect those taxes from the land. And so the other thing that they do at the end of the year is that they decide that they are also going to lower income taxes even more. Sometimes they decide to knock a bit of the income tax that you've, you've made through that year and they give you a little bit of that back. One of the countries where people generally speak highly of government, okay, it's not perfect, and say it's not perfect, but Singapore has also got a 90% um, of people that live there are homeowners. And the way that they've managed that, because obviously they're geographically constrained, which isn't the greatest idea if you want to have affordable housing market to be in that situation. And so the Housing Development Board in Singapore has, has housed most of its people in government housing. Which, when you live in Australia, you think, oh, government housing, can you imagine how bad that must be, living in Singapore and having that? But no, it's not. I thought I would take a look at what the government housing is like in Singapore. And the dilemma over there is, is that it's almost better than the private housing that they have. So I did, I had a look. And these are some pictures, and they're perhaps not the best pictures, but this was taken from a video. The video was fantastic. Shows a video of, of these two new people going into their new apartment. The view that they get, they're looking around it. It's in an apartment block, but every few levels in the apartment block has a park and benches to sit on because they don't have the outside areas to go on. And this is a little bit of, of the development that you can see. And it's just truly amazing, you know, a country. Now, Singapore isn't the only one. You might say that it is. It's not the only one. There are numerous examples of of countries or regions in countries that have lent in the direction of the policies that Henry George is advocating. Even those ones, and I've used this numerous times, Texas in the States. Texas, which didn't allow its house prices to boom, and so they didn't bust in the 2008 crisis. And it continued to attract large population growth, virtually zero unemployment. It was one of the most successful states in America, while everyone else was collapsing around it, you know, uh, Texas was doing well. And that's really what well, was called the, the tax miracle. That's when all the papers are talking about. It's the tax miracle. What did it do? It has high taxes, not just on land, it includes property as well. It's not perfect. But it has high, high taxes on, on essentially land, comes down to land, and no state income tax, very easy regulatory policies. And so it attracts a lot of people for that reason, and it keeps its house prices cheap 
for that reason, one of those reasons. So a lot of the others can be, can be uh, there's numerous other examples that I wanted to talk to you about. But I think this is really, you know, that when we talk about where we're going to go in the future, when we talk about the role for Georgism in the future and what we've got to do, this is the type of information that we really need to get out there because everybody would be far better off in society if we collected the economic rent from land and we used that to fund government services rather than penalising labour and um, capital and productivity, rather penalising that behaviour. And you can talk about, you know, all you will hear in the mainstream analysis of this is the problem is government debt, the problem is, is elsewhere that have got lower wages and things being shifted for. But the problem isn't that, the problem is the tax system. And it really is the tax system that can make our country prosper. Isn't she on my fire? Isn't that amazing? Yeah.